Welcome to Times Like These, the American Purpose podcast about current events and current ideas and the search for a new political center. I'm your host, Charles Lane of The Washington Post. Our guest today is Jay Johnson, who is probably best known to most uh, Americans as Secretary of Homeland Security from 2013 to 2017 second half of the Obama administration, a position in which he was in charge of so much of public safety and national security in the United States, everything from terrorism issues to cybersecurity to one of the themes we're going to be talking about today, uh, border security and immigration. Uh, But, you know, that's only the tip of a very large iceberg (laughs) of a distinguished resume in Jay Johnson's career. He had occupied uh, or he had served in senior positions in uh, the Pentagon as a general counsel for the Department of the Defense and Department of the Air Force. Previously, extensive record in private law practice. He's on the board of corporations and uh, nonprofits, including Columbia University, and um, truly, a major figure in the field and someone who weighed in recently on June 18th with a very provocative op-ed in USA Today, really calling attention to the deteriorating situation in public safety and border security in this country and issuing a kind of a warning to his own party, the Democratic Party, of the possible political consequences of either being perceived to fail in coping with those problems or actually failing in coping with them. And we're going to talk a little bit about those uh, questions today. But first, I just want to say, once again, welcome to Jay Johnson, and thanks for being on Times Like These. Chuck, I'm happy to be here. I look forward to our discussion. Well, I wanted to jump right in with something you said in the um, op-ed. It's a It's a quote that that really struck me with respect to the issue of border security. An out-of-control border lends itself to the view that our government cannot perform even the basic function of securing our own perimeter. And when you wrote that, it seemed to me you were going well beyond the question of what this might mean for one political party or another and describing something that's really kind of a, a test of legitimacy of our system in a more fundamental way. Maybe you could flesh that out a little bit for us. Sure. If I could just touch on for a second, the overriding reason I wrote that op-ed in USA Today. Public safety, feeling safe in your day-to-day, moment-by-moment life is a very personal issue to people. Over and above and separate and apart from politics, When I was Secretary of Homeland Security, the question I used to get most often from friends and family was not a policy question about cybersecurity or counterterrorism or immigration. It was, hey, is it safe for me to send my child to country X for spring break? Or is it safe for me to go to the following public event? Safety is an overriding issue for people in their day-to-day lives. I know people here in New York City where I work who are progressive on just about every issue I know, but are afraid to ride the New York City subways, which is why we Democrats in 
blue cities, blue suburbs, blue communities, where high crime has the most effect, need to embrace the issue of public safety. With regard to the border, I do not view the problem of our southern border principally as a security issue. Most migrants who cross our border are, are harmless men, women, and children, families just simply seeking to flee a very dangerous, bad situation and looking for a better life in America. The point I was making in that op-ed, Chuck, which you have noted, is a lot of Americans say, hey, if we can't even secure our own border, our own perimeter, if we do not know who is entering our country because we can't keep track of it, that says a lot about the most basic function of our government and our ability to fulfill that function. So that was the reason I made that reference. So as we, I think there's probably a lot of confusion, even among fairly well-informed people, about exactly not just what is going on. We hear these large numbers, about 1.6 million people being encountered by Border Patrol. Although, of course, as you well know, that doesn't mean they've all come across the border to stay. Quite a few of those encounters result in expulsions. Others are uh, granted an asylum process inside the United States and so on. But perhaps you could help us understand why it is that the border seems so difficult to control, that so such a large flow seems to be swamping the system that we supposedly have in place to cope with it. What are the, what are the sources of the dysfunction? Well, I'll give you the answer I have as someone who owned this problem for three years. There are actually answers to our broken immigration system. There are pragmatic, practical solutions to border security, uh, to the delays in adjudicating asylum claims and so forth that are obtainable, but they are politically unobtainable because immigration has become such a fraught, emotional, red meat issue across the political spectrum. There are smart, there are smart ways to better secure our border. There are smart ways to take care of the DACA class. There are smart ways to permit people who've been in this country for decades without authorization to get on the books, be accountable, and pay taxes. And we've come close in Congress to comprehensive immigration reform. But because the politics of this issue has become so difficult, we continue down the road of a broken immigration system, banging our head against the wall, seeing the levels of crossings on our southern border that we see today. So just to look at the deterrent side of the ledger for a moment, how much of the additional measures that you think we need actually require additional legislation? Because as I'm sure you're very well aware, so much of what's been going on in the last few years has the flavor of executives trying to do things on their own because Congress is stymied and then the courts intervene and it gets extremely complicated. How much, though, is impossible to improve without legislation? 
I think that the principle on the on the on the border security side, I think the principal answer is resources, uh, more immigration judges, more expedited asylum removal proceedings. The experts can tell you more about whether there should be changes in our asylum laws in some way. I don't claim to be an expert there, but I think the principal answer is, is resources and ensuring that we have enough to deal with spikes. Right. And, you know, another thing that I th- I've been frustrated by personally as somebody who writes about this, but I think frustrates a lot of people more generally is the the lack of sort of creative thinking about the labor force aspect of this, because as you rightly point out, the vast majority of the people who are doing this are doing it because they're trying to feed their families and they're looking for work. And it seems like there's a real opportunity here for an intelligent, humane approach to something I know is very controversial, but potentially effective is guest worker uh, programs or temporary work permits. Have you given any thought to that side of the issue and what do you think the right the right thing to do on that regard is? This is something that Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State, has spoken very thoughtfully on. We should look at this problem as you could you could address this problem in an effective way in the best interest of the United States by more effectively managing the use of migrants who want to come here just very often on a seasonal basis for you know farm work for example agriculture we could we could use migrants employ migrants um, in a way that promotes our agriculture and promotes that that industry and have you know guest worker programs so that people are incentivized to come to the United States with authorization, obtain authorization, send the remittances back to Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and then during the off season, spend it with their families. So there is a there is a way to to manage it. If you if we could just Chuck, if we could just take the emotion out of the issue, errati- you know, de- address the 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 misapprehensions that this is a giant displacement of the American workforce. Well, you use the word emotion, and of course, our politics these days are seemingly ruled by emotions all the way around. That's a big part of the problem. And often when we talk about issues like this that sort of have a superficially technical aspect to them, in fact, it really is emotion is what truly underlies people's views on the matter. And I worry that we've kind of, I, I don't know what quite the right word is here, the horse is out of the barn or the horse is in front of the cart or whatever. But somehow it seems like what we really need to do before we fix immigration to sort of fix politics, right? Because the the longer this problem goes on and gets kind of kind of demagogued because of these various horrific scenes, and we've had one recently with the this terrible thing where 51 people at least were killed in a suffocated in a truck. So I guess I'm I'm probing for your view of what has to be fixed first. Do we have to have some kind of change in in the political atmosphere before we get to solve this problem, or do you think 
this is one of those problems we could work on, and then that would itself improve the political atmosphere? That, that's a good question. It's the same question you could ask around the gun safety issue. We just had enacted into law modest steps toward gun safety. Some people see that as a first step. Others, I'm sure, will see that as a final step, at least in the short term. Look, we came yeah. together enough. You know, let's go back to our neutral corners. It wasn't that long ago that Congress was willing to come together on comprehensive immigration reform. You'll recall that in 2013, S744, a Senate effort at comprehensive immigration reform, got 68 votes. That's a lot of Republicans as well yes. as Democrats who died in the House in 2014. Look, if I could pick one thing to fix, one small thing to fix about our immigration system, I would take care of the DACA recipients and codify that program into law, finally. Even Donald Trump said that in, 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 in certain moments. Yes. And so we ought to be able to grapple with that, at least. I, I don't, you know, the, the for a long time, certainly within the Obama administration, the view was you got to do it all at once. You got to, you can't take it one issue at a time. You've got to, in a comprehensive way, address the things that progressives want, address the things that conservatives want, put it all in one package, get it done, and, and move on. The politics of that seem really hard right now. The politics of dealing with it issue by issue seem really hard now. I think your question goes to the underlying problem with our politics today. Too many of our representatives in Washington are incentivized politically to play to their bases. I believe that Americans, it all, it all tracks back to the American voter. The American voter begins to assess their elected representatives in, in a different way and, and reward them by stuff they get done. Every incumbent ought to have a report card. What legislation did you sponsor or co-sponsor that became law this year, as opposed to, you know, how effective did, did you yell at the other side and call them evil and bad and stupid? Um, if we started to incentivize members of Congress in a different way, I think you'd see a different kind of behavior. We had um, a man I'm very admir admiring of and very fond of, my late editor, Fred Hyatt, uh, was on your point about DACA, he insisted, and we, we took this as an editorial position at the Washington Post, Democrats should let Trump have his wall, as Fred used to say, in return for DACA. He thought that was a good kind of one-for-one -one trade. It certainly doesn't posit any moral equivalence between the two, but I thought it was kind of pragmatic. You wrote your piece in USA Today very much in the voice of concerned American, but also concerned Democrats, somebody who's concerned about the political future of his own party. What's the one move or concession that you think Democrats ought to be prepared to make, you know, in a perfect world to push the border security thing closer to a solution? There is a smart way to enhance border security that probably resides in the top desk drawer 
of a lot of border security experts and customs and border protection right now, which doesn't consist of simply building a wall. I used to say when I was in office, you can build a, a 10 foot wall on top of a 10,000 foot mountain, but if somebody is incentivized to climb a 10,000 foot mountain, they're not going to be deterred by a 10 foot wall. Right. So you build, a, you can build walls, you can fortify walls, you can replace walls in places along the Southern border, which is a lot of different types of terrain in the places where it makes sense to do that. Sure. But, there should also be more surveillance, I suppose, maybe even some more Border Patrol agents, more airplanes, more boats, uh, more aerial surveillance, uh, all kinds of tools, more tools to detect things being smuggled through the ports of entry, the land borders, the bridge borders. There are, so there are smart ways to, to do this to enhance border security. And that's not. I don't even view that as a trade-off necessarily. It's just a smart thing to do, along with a whole lot of other things we can do to better regulate immigration in this country. But that would be my one. Yes, if, and, and, and I would be prepared to support that, uh, not as a conservative or progressive issue, but just a smart thing to do. So let's let's shift gears slightly to the other piece in the time we have left, the, the other piece you were addressing in your USA Today column, which is, uh, for lack of a better term, street crime or, or, or ordinary crime, not the control of our border, but what's going on in our communities around the country. And I think it's fair to say you had, uh, if not a warning, an admonition for your own party that the either negligence, either real or perceived on that issue is, is deadly politically. I think most people would probably would agree with you, but then it raises the question, how do you tangibly do that? Stop rising crime without sacrificing all the other very important objectives you were articulating in that piece having to do with police reform and all the uh, momentum for that, that has been been building over the last couple of years out of the uh, terrible uh, death of George Floyd. So, so maybe I, that's a huge topic, but I just maybe you could uh, give us a few highlights of how you think about resolving it. Where do I start? I think I'd start at recruiting. Recruiting public safety officers, police officers who want to be gun carriers, they want to be people who wear a badge for the right reasons. Not to be the neighborhood badass or the neighborhood bully. That's number one. I think in police forces across America, there are far too many people who are basically bullies with a badge there to effectively terrorize a community. Beyond that, I think that more police departments across this country need to do a better job of training officers on the street in how to de-escalate a controversy. It shouldn't be the case that somebody who falls asleep in a drive-in line at a Wendy's in Georgia escalates into an exercise of lethal force. And it happens every day in, in police forces across America where 
office, public safety officers effectively de-escalate a controversy. There needs to be more, more training along those lines. But my overall view is that it's, this is not a matter of polar extremes, where on one extreme, it's defund the police. On another extreme, it's stop and frisk and effectively terrorize the community. There's a lot in between. You know, you just ask people like Bill Bratton or Chuck Ramsey, as I mentioned in the op-ed, about how to maintain a robust, effective force that effectively engages the community. And this is a matter for, for Democrats because high crime levels exist principally in Democratic communities across this country. The voters, the constituents, probably in big cities care most about this issue above all others. If you're afraid to walk out of your own house, get on your own neighborhood subway or public transportation to come to work, or you're afraid to put your kids on a subway, that is very personal. And it's something that just has to be addressed. You know, uh, it's also something that by its nature, the discussion is ruled by anecdote. You know, it, all it takes is one awful incident, and of course there have been more than one awful incident, where somebody who is out on bail commits a terrible crime, and then that can threaten the whole reform idea. I think to yeah. some extent, that's what happened to Chesa Boudin. And I think another point that I, I, I suspect you'd agree with, but people are that's what also happened to Michael maybe, Crock, maybe don't the way in 1988. So, yeah, oh, yes. Oh, yes. The, with the famous Willie Horton ad. Um, you know, defund the police is an especially counterproductive slogan because all the things you're talking about cost money. In other words, reforming the police probably would mean putting more money into the police to do the kinds of training and selection and you know, dealing more carefully and equipping people with non-lethal devices and so on doesn't come cheap. Correct. Um, but it's an investment worth making. I cannot think of a higher, better use of tax dollars at a local or state level than public safety. Well, I think, yeah, I, I think, I think, I think the sweet spot that you were are articulating in your piece, I, I think people and, and I, I don't think this is different as between black people and white people, urban or rural, any other division you care to mention. People want as much police as they need, and they want them to behave fairly to everyone. Correct. And that, of course, has been very, very elusive in our um, in our history. But I think after George Floyd, I think a lot of people essentially just said, you know, it's hopeless. They're never going to be fair to everyone. Let's just cut their budgets. And that was, an, uh, you know, a perhaps understandable reaction, but it's had kind of, I think, an unfortunate, it's created kind of an unfortunate political dynamic. Right. Agree. So let's, uh, let's just take one more uh, uh, moment or two to do something I like to do at the end of our, uh, my discussions, uh, explore just a, an interesting aspect of the guests, uh, interesting, but perhaps unexpected aspect of the guests, uh, Career. You were telling me before we started to record, uh, Jay, that you are actually you're an interviewer and a radio host yourself. So probably should have been in charge of this uh, <laughs> podcast yourself. Tell 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 our audience a little bit about what you do on the radio. Well, I 
I do a lot of different things now in my private life. Now that I've left government, I'm a lawyer. I serve on the board of directors, board of trustees of various different for-profit, not-for-profit institutions. I give public commentary like I'm doing right now. And I'm also a radio host. I love classic R&B music. There's a radio station, if I could give a little promo here. Uh, there's a radio station in northern New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, WBGO 88.3 FM. It's a public radio station. I've been a huge supporter and a listener for years and years and years. I started helping them during fundraising drives by going on the air with, with one of their big hosts. And the station manager finally said, how would you like to have your own, your own show? And I said, I'd love that. It'd be like fantasy camp for me. So <laughs> not every Saturday morning, but some Saturday mornings, 8 to 10 a.m., you will hear All Things Sold by Jay Johnson on 88.3 FM, uh, including July 2nd, 2022. Uh -huh. And I have an interview on every show. My first interview, my debut show in March was... Uh, a saxophonist named William Jefferson Clinton, 42nd president, <laughs> went on to talk about his love of the saxophone, how he learned to play, his favorite jazz musicians, his favorite R&B artists. It's a remarkable interview. Uh, July 2nd, the Harvard historian Henry Louis Gates um, to talk about R&B music, the history of R&B music. And, and, and so forth. And it's something I really, really love to do. Well, it just who would be one of the classic R&B groups that you uh, a listener would hear on your show? Wow, that's uh, Aretha Franklin, The Dells, Sam Cooke, uh, Luther Vandross, Teddy Pinnegrass, Beyonce, Four Tops, Temptations, uh, Dinah Washington, Dion Warwick, Nancy Wilson. I could keep going, <laughs> but you, maybe the, you, would the Spinners but, make? Uh, would the Spinners make an appearance? The Spinners would make an appearance, absolutely. All right. Well, this sounds like a great show, and uh, uh, musically far superior to this one. I, I will say that. But uh, uh, it's it's been fascinating talking with you. And uh, again, I can't think of anybody who is uh, more knowledgeable and, and, and more concerned really with the kinds of issues that you're talking about and, and brings a, a greater depth of knowledge and experience to these matters. So again, uh, Secretary Jay Johnson, I wanna thank you for coming on times like these and, and having this conversation with us. Chuck, I enjoyed our discussion. Thanks for having me.